everybody. Welcome to episode 13 of Reggie's Comic Stories. Uh, you can find me here every other Wednesday on chrisandreggie.com or pick me up, uh, you know, if you want to pick me up, maybe, you know, you can get me at uh, Spotify, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, uh, Stitcher, anything else that I miss? I missed probably a couple, but you know the story. And uh, I do alternate with Chris, uh, who does Chris's on Infinite Earths every other Wednesday. Um, so two apologies, of course, to start out the show because I am a terrible. Uh, I have moved. Uh, I'm in my new apartment in Massachusetts, and uh, it is being furnished. But I do apologize for any echo that you experience listening to this. Uh, if you listen to this week's Cosmic Treadmill, which was about uh, Hip Hop Family Tree, I think that was episode 135, uh, you'll know that the echo has improved. I have done better, and it will be even more improved on the next uh, thing that we record. But right now, I am dealing with you know what I what I got here. Uh, the other thing I want to say, I apologize that this is coming later in the day, but I literally had to build the desk upon which to put my microphone so that I could do this show. So uh, I want to talk about something today. This is actually the very, very first episode of Cosmic Treadmill that we ever did uh, back when we were still on uh, Weird Science DC Comics podcast. Part of that um, was about this subject, the DC Comics explosion and implosion. Actually, I can't remember if it was that or if we did uh, when Marvel, when Jim Shooter made a proposal to Marvel to buy DC uh, if it was that, then it was the second episode. And you can hear it in, if you go way, way back in our archives. Uh, Chris has labeled these five episodes that are pretty short and not as in-depth as we eventually would become. Uh, but they're, you know, Cosmic Treadmill, the first, Cosmic Treadmill, the second, and so forth. So it's like five extra episodes that don't land in with the normal numbering of... Our episodes. Anyway, we talked about the DC Comics explosion and implosion back in those days, but we were trying to keep it kind of short. We wanted to be, you know, a segment on a podcast, not our own thing. So, uh, you know, we tried to keep it to about 15, 20 minutes. I believe the reason we eventually did split off is because we failed miserably at that goal. We eventually were taking up a full hour and uh, people weren't, you know, people trying to hear their DC Comics reviews weren't really trying to hear us talk about comics history at the time um but we talked about this this uh comics explosion however since then a book has come out and it's called comic book implosion an oral history of dc comics circa 1978 by keith dallas and john wells uh, published by tomorrow's publishing came out last year i'm pretty sure um and it's incredible, folks. If the you know, I've done this before where I read excerpts from a book and I'm essentially telling you, go get the book. Go get you know, go get the book from the library, buy the book, steal the book, borrow the book. Uh it's incredible. If you like comic book history, if you like oral history, sometimes that's uh people just enjoy that. I know I do. I love I have a bunch of oral histories of jazz and uh, other things. Um it's invaluable stuff and it's people that worked at DC and Marvel. Uh, and within the industry at the time, it's fans who would later become pros or fans that are still fans. Uh, it's really incredible, and it adds a totally new dimension to uh, this subject of the DC Comics explosion and implosion. So very quickly, just to set a little bit of understanding of what this is, is that 1977, I believe, 
Uh, Jeanette Kahn became the, she was hired as the publisher for DC Comics. And uh, she came from a non-comics background from uh, children's magazines like Dynamite. And uh, there was another one I can't remember that came out at the time. But they were pretty popular in the 70s. And, um, you know, to be honest, they were like kind of like highlights for teens now that I think about it. These weren't, were like, uh, they weren't like Seventeen magazine or uh, whatever the heck. I couldn't tell you what the hell people read nowadays. But, you know, they weren't really, these were much more watered down, uh, you know, parentally acceptable magazines, which would be totally in keeping with what they wanted for the comics. So that was um, a pretty good hire there uh, on DC's part. Although I do want to say that it's something DC has done a few times in its history is looked outside of comics to sort of right the ship in a way. Uh, they did it in the 80s. Uh, they hired a bunch of people from book publishing. They did it again in the 90s. They sort of like went outside and they, you know, the, it, promoting from within is kind of a rarity in a lot of ways, uh, at least compared to Marvel. Marvel seems to always promote from within and, you know, they'll, uh, you know, more art directors will become, you know, publishers and editors in chief and so forth. Uh, but regardless, um, Jeanette Kahn was brought in and, uh, at the same time, having nothing to do with her, uh, comics, pretty much the price of comics were going to have to rise from 35 to at least 40 cents. And uh, this was something that was happening all throughout the 70s, mainly due to the price of paper uh, and other material. Just, you know, it's always rising, always, even today. Uh, so to cope with that, they would have to raise the price. And, you know, there would be a little bit of a price war between Marvel and DC. One would do it, one wouldn't for a little while, but you could be guaranteed that if one did, the other was going to follow. Uh, soon enough, Marvel seemed to always be the one to follow for some reason. I'm not sure why, but they would always. There was just no way around it. Um, so Jeanette Kahn found herself facing this uh, pretty much right away and decided the best thing to do to add value and actually to slightly cut their own profit. I don't, I don't want you to cry too much, but it wasn't like they were hemorrhaging money, but they, you know, it would slightly cut their profit to add pages to go from, uh, I guess, 22 to, you know, 40 page, 30 pages or whatever, uh, plus ads. Um, <clears throat> and uh, also to uh, increase the number of titles they were publishing, like threefold, uh, a massive increase in the number of titles. And this, the idea was that they were going to, you know, first of all, dominate the comics end of the newsstand. Remember, this is before direct comics publishing really even was, uh, you know, considered a, a super viable way. Would, you know, they were still chasing the newsstand dollars was the main thing. Um, so, you know, their idea was that they were going to, you know, put out tons of comics and it was going to be for everybody. They had action-adventure comics, they had fantasy comics, they had war comics, they had superheroes, uh, they tried a whole bunch of stuff, Warlord came out of that time, uh, is that the, was that the time of first issue special, I think that was around that time, where they were just going nuts, uh, showcase kind of like revived around that time, that the second iteration of Doom Patrol showed up just kind of as, you know, because showcase was there really more or less, but, uh, anyway, it was just really a, uh, time of experimentation for DC. And then in 1978, there was a particularly bad snowstorm in February. And the way the story goes is that uh, shipments were delayed or some, some Michigas happened. And uh, the result was that D that Warner Brothers executives who, you know, you know, run DC 
went nuts. They called a massive amount of the staff. They fired a bunch of editors and, uh, you know, cut the line, and you know, down from the number of titles they were publishing to pre-explosion numbers. It was down, like, to, like, I don't forget, 22 titles or something in total, down from, like, got 80 or 70 or some crazy number. So, uh... Yeah, it was kind of like, it kind of blindsided everyone in the industry. And I think what's interesting about this oral telling is that there's more to the story, you know, and I don't want to give it away because what I want you to do is to go find this book if you haven't read it and go read it. But uh, I've, I've, as far as I've known, the February storm was always given as the reason uh, these things happened. And it turns out that that's not necessarily the case. So I'm going to read a couple of excerpts here. Uh, really, the first one is uh, Jeanette Kahn. She called this a publishorial, and that appeared in every DC comic book that sold in June 1978 with a uh, September cover date to tell fans, to tell readers that they were going to uh, be seeing some new things coming from DC Comics. And uh, it begins, changes. These days, they come fast and furious. As you've no doubt noticed, we've raised our price this month. Not totally shocking, as comics have gone up in price every 15 months or so for the past five or six years. But hopefully you've noticed that the number of pages in our standard comic books have also gone up. We've added eight pages of all-new story. No ads, no reprints, along with the price increase. With the single exception of our story-packed dollar comics, this is the first time anybody in the field is not giving you less for your money. In fact, it's a 47% gain in story for a 43% raise in price. Of course, we didn't have to do this. We could have tacked on another 5 cents for those 17-page stories. Before long, other publishers will be charging 40 cents for their 17-page stories, unless they follow our lead and provide more pages. You'll be paying 2.35 cents per page of story for theirs, and only two cents for ours. That's like getting about three pages free from DC. I don't have to bore you with the ever-raising cost of absolutely everything. Each time anybody adds another nickel to the cost of a standard comic book, somebody composes a little essay about how phone calls used to cost five cents, and hot dogs a dime. But we really didn't want to take from our loyal readers, even, even our casual readers for that matter, without giving at least as much in return. We're excited because we believe the 50-cent comic book, like the highly successful dollar comics package we introduced 18 months ago, will be a more attractive product for the retailer as well as for the reader. Being in a more profitable format for the retailer, our comics should be a little easier to find. Some places that do not carry comics will be handling DC Comics before long. Most harder-to-find comics will get better distribution. Better still, the 25 pages of story format gives us something we haven't had for the better part of a decade. The chance to do really full-length stories, with fully developed subplots and characterization. We also have the chance to bring back some of your favorite characters that haven't been able to carry an entire 17-page title. Enemy Ace, The Human Target, The Atom, and Omak, for example. And we're able to introduce a number of new characters of a more experimental nature, Cinnamon, The Odd Man, The Amazons. The new format also gives us a bit of room to experiment. 
You'll see the return of Swamp Thing, original characters like The Vixen, new Western and war titles. We've even been able to schedule a couple of titles which will represent some of the best DC comics printed in the past four decades. Archie Goodwin and Walter Simons' Manhunter series, the famous Batlash books, and so on. And we'll also be making the dollar comics look even more attractive because starting this month, we're taking out all the ads. You'll be getting an additional page or two of story, but now we'll have the freedom to run more two-page spreads and wraparound covers. The dollar comics, including our latest edition, Adventure Comics, will now have 68 pages of all-new story and art from cover to cover. Not a page of ads. We've been calling all this the DC Explosion, and that's what it truly is. An explosion of new ideas, new concepts, new characters, and new formats. We now have near-limitless opportunities to experiment, and do longer and indeed better stories to be more flexible in the type of material we're presenting. The best is getting better. We couldn't do it without the encouragement and boundless energy of our creative staff. From new talents like Marshall Rogers and Joe Staten to established pros like Jerry Conway and Len Wein to, if they'll forgive me, vets like Kurt Swan and now editor Ross Andrew. To each and every creator working with us, my deepest and sincerest thanks. And to our faithful readers who have shown us so much support and enthusiasm since we've started planting the seeds of change, I offer my thanks as well. We honestly could not have done it without your help. But, and I know you're expecting this, we're not stopping here. Even as I write these words, we have working, I have working proposals on my desk for no less than 10 new projects not all of which are new titles. We're continuing to grow and branch out, to boldly go where no comics company has gone before. And we're glad you're there with us every step of the way. Take care. And uh, along with Jeanette Kahn's June Publishorial, many DC titles also featured The Answer Man's Guide to the DC Explosion, a spinoff of Bob Rizaki's popular Daily Planet Q&A column, which provided an alphabetical list of what was coming uh, with the expanded DC line. Uh, And this is sort of a good checklist as you go through comics from that time to see uh, how things are changing and how rapidly they were changing in the uh, publishing arm. So that's interesting. So she's, you know, Jeanette Conn is basically saying, you know, we're going to go to a quarter, two pieces of change rather than cumbersome three or more pieces of change, as I was talking about before, but you're going to get more for it. And, the dollar comic deal, and I I wasn't buying comics at this time, but I remember seeing a ton of dollar comics and thinking these were the best value because they were just wall-to-wall comics. I didn't know they were reprints for the most part, uh, or totally, nor, nor did I care because I hadn't ever seen the original, so it was all new to me. Uh, so we got some people uh, of the time who are going to, uh, you know, opine on, on this uh, DC explosion here. Uh, Mike Gold, who was then the DC Comics Public Relations representative, said in an interview printed in Direct Currents Newsletter Number 4, that was sort of the uh, DC's uh, newsletter, I guess, to retailers, uh, June 1978 uh, publishing date or whatever. Cover date? Would that technically have a cover date? Because they were free, so uh, I don't know that it needs a pub date. But anyway... Uh, We have over a dozen entirely new projects in one phase or another of preparation. While it's only fair to note that we couldn't possibly publish them all, we can tell you this list includes three new westerns from Jerry Conway, Len Wein, and Bob Toomey, respectively, 
a JSA superhero solo book from Paul Levitz, two totally uncategorizable features from Larry Hama and Carrie Burkett and Roger McKenzie, the latter two working together, a new superhero from Mr. McKenzie, a new mystery project from Murray Boltonoff, new projects from Shelley Mayer, Michael Fleischer, and Jerry Conway, and another new superhero from the infinite talent of Steve Ditko, and a new non-superhero title from Mike Grell. So those of us that know what really did happen, we can guess some of this stuff. Uh, you know, Mike Grell did Warlord, uh, Steve Ditko eventually would crank out Creeper, and... Uh, it was another one too. Was this, this this was Shade the Changing Man around now? So, um, some of this stuff happened. Some of this stuff did not come to be. Uh, you know, you can uh, take a look. They, you know, do a little mix and match. See what you see. What happened in a news in news items printed in Media Seed number thirty, March April cover date nineteen seventy eight. Uh, this seems to be one of the only publications that was covering comics at the time. By the way, uh, that wasn't you know comics journal or something. It says, Len Wein is also working on a large number of filler features for his comics, bringing back classic characters who never seem quite able to support books of their own. Danger Trail will bring back King Faraday, and will guest star a certain General Rip Carter, with or without a wisecracking commando sidekick. Five-star superhero spectacular, first seen as a 1977 one-shot, is being given a new lease on life this summer, starting off with a tale of Zatanna, daughter of Zatara. Uh, master of Magic. The Spectre is another character waiting in the wings for this opportunity to go on stage for the third or fourth time, along with a host of other old-timers, but the current schedule only has room for so many of these heroes at a time. Plans are underway for a general expansion of the DC line by next Christmas, and ideas are being entertained for new books, new characters, and new series. Uh, John Morrow, a future comic book historian in a, in a 2018 recollection, probably done for this book, published by his company, uh, you know, that he part owns, uh, he says, besides relying on the DC Comics hotline, I also subscribe to the Buyer's Guide co- for Comic Fandom to get in a weekly news fix, and it came in handy when I decided to start a local comic book club. My friends Matt Turner and Ken Hathaway were the charter members, plus two other guys who I sadly don't recall now, and we got together in the clubhouse of the apartment complex I was living in with my mom. To kick off the first meeting, I called all the info I could about DC's new explosion line from TBG and assembled my first comics publication, which I cleverly, cleverly, question mark, called The Comics Explosion. It was a simple two-page newsletter that I typeset on my family typewriter, pasted up with a little artwork, and then had my dad Xerox a handful of copies at his office. Our club had its first weekly meeting, where I handed out my proud little publication, and we all went our separate ways till the following Saturday. Kurt Busiek, a future comic book writer, recalled in 2018, I remember the ads for the DC explosion, and I was interested. I remember that Joe Staten ad with the group of heroes, and I didn't know who all of them were, but it was like getting the fall preview issue of TV Guide and thinking about all the new series that might be interesting. For specifics, I remember buying Dynamic Classics number 1, with Neil Adams' Batman story and a Goodwin Simonson Manhunter backup. And looking forward to more, because at that time I've heard a lot about both the Adams' Batman stories and Manhunter, but hadn't read much of either. 
Tom Brevoort, a future Marvel Comics editor, and in fact current editor-in-chief, in a 2018 recollection said, uh, I can remember seeing all the promotion for the new upcoming DC explosion during the ramp-up. Ads ran constantly, calling out all the new backup features that were going to run and pointing out the added value for money that the readers were going to get. I'll admit the effort didn't make much of an impact on me. I was, for some reason, a fan of the character Airwave, so it was nice to see that he was going to be getting a series alternating with the Atom in the back of Action Comics. But this was also the point where I was had really started to branch out into reading Marvel books, and so that extra 15 cents was a real calculation problem. The added cost wasn't enough to make me drop any of the DC books that I loved, but it did make it more difficult to branch out and try new things. It was easier to experiment with an issue of, say, Daredevil at 35 cents. Jim Shooter, who was then the Marvel Comics editor-in-chief, in fact, he would have been brand new in 1978, in an interview printed in the Comics Journal number 40, June 1978, cover date, said, I don't like DC's thinking on the explosion. I don't think it's going to work out the way they have it planned. Obviously, the people above me don't think so either, or else I would be hearing from them. I'm not worried too much about that. Let them mess around with that. If it works out, fine. If it doesn't, then they're the ones, the people who are experimenting. It would seem to me that would logically be the ones who have a need to experiment. Marvel Comics is doing fine. We're doing great. I feel that if we have the lowest price package on the market, that there'll be an awful lot of kids who will opt for the lowest price package, especially because I think our books are pretty good. Uh, And, you know, it's kind of funny that he's saying that because we know at this time, at least now we know, that uh, Marvel was having some trouble. They were still outselling DC by a wide margin, but, uh, you know, things had come down from their heyday, and, uh, you know, Jim Shooter was sort of brought in to write the ship, and as we now know, looking back on it, he did. But anyway, that's another story altogether. And uh, finish off this little section with Mike Gold, who was then DC Comics Public Relations Representative in a letter printed in the Comics Reader number 155, Uh, April 1978 cover date said, If the absolute worst happens, I'd hope we go up to 48 pages at a higher price or include reprints, then revert to the 32-page format. The 32-pager never should have happened, and it certainly should have been killed off back when the 48 pages returned three-quarters of a decade ago. And, uh, yeah, we sure don't see a lot of 48 pages these days, do we, guys? And to finish up this episode, I don't want to belabor this whole thing. And like I said, really, the best you can do is to get this highly readable, highly engaging uh, oral history, uh, you know, and read it yourselves. Uh, But I want to close out with what happened later, a little bit of a recollection. So either due to this weird shipping problem or other reasons, uh, the Warner Brothers executives, I mean, they came in, they cleaned house. They, They immediately fired five people. Larry Hama was among them. Um, you know, they, they severely cut back on the number of titles being published. Suddenly people were, you know, who were making a living working on these books were left holding the bag in a sense. Although I don't know that they stopped any work in the middle of it happening. Uh, although actually we do know a little bit of that did happen because they eventually had to, uh, print what they had left over. Um, in the uh, comics cavalcades one and two, the the ones that are just xeroxes, uh, you can find those online. 
Anyway, uh, actually, I'm going to read two of them real quick. Mike Gold. So this is, you know, before the the fact, Mike Gold was very upbeat and looking, sounding pretty good about how things were going to go. After the fact, uh, he sounds a little different. Mike Gold, then DC Comics public relations representative in a news story printed in the Comics Journal number 41, August 1978 cover date, said... There's an aura of depression here in the DC Comics offices with respect to the fact that some people are not going to be getting work. So, Mike W. Barr, who was then a DC Comics staff proofreader, said in an article printed in back issue number two, which had a February 2004 cover date. And I really picked this partly because I love Mike Barr. I think he's uh, a really talented, fun writer. Batman and the Outsiders is one of my favorite comics, So, but also because... This is the impression of somebody in the trenches, you know, the things have changed drastically and rapidly. Uh, And, you know, Mike Barr, as a proofreader, knows the least about it, but he does know enough to, you know, tell a little bit of a story. So he says, Jack C. Harris, who was an editor at the time and a long, long time editor at DC Comics, uh, Jack C. Harris entered my office and closed the door. Jack thrust out his right hand, and I automatically rose and shook it without knowing the occasion. Congratulations, Jack said. We get to stay. I had met Jack when I had begun work at DC in September of the previous year. Though we weren't close friends, we shared several enthusiasms, such as DC's Silver Age comics. I had even done a little writing for him. Though I saw a lot of Jack every day, his office was right next to mine as DC proofreader and the general man of all work. For him to close the door before he spoke was both unique and a trifle ominous. Now I knew why. I had known, as had the entire office, that something was up. Rumors had drifted down that the higher-ups of Warner Communications Incorporated, DC's parent firm, were unhappy with DC's performance and determined to take further action. So Warner execs, none of whom had to worry about their incomes being reduced, had already slashed DC's output from 32 books a month to 23, yet it was rumored further action would be taken, though what form that action would take no one yet knew. The most extreme story had DC shutting down publication of all original comics immediately, keeping only the big three titles of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman alive as reprint books to keep a newsstand presence and merchandising interest alive. None of us quite bought that, but the degree of our worry could be measured by the fact that none of us categorically ruled it out either. When the implosion fell, I and other DC staffers were given a list of freelancers whose assignments had just been cancelled, with orders to tell them to stop work immediately. Even I knew that that was nothing more than a signal to a freelancer to pull an all-nighter to finish the assignment before delivery. Amazing how many freelancers I contacted had finished the jobs they were working on just before I told them to quit. But, we get to stay? I hadn't known things were that bad. Few people had. The mood at the office in the days immediately preceding what had become known as the DC implosion, though never loudly and never within hearing of any DC executives, toward the work of comics was casual, to say the least. Virtually all the freelancers and most of the staffers claimed that comics were a way station in their careers, a temporary stop on the way to better things. I was naively delighted to be in comics, even at the low orbit I had attained, having forsaken a job in which I utilized my Bachelor of Arts degree to scrub floors that are no Ohio, Sears, and Roebuck. 
I vividly recall conversations with Len Wein and Marvin Wolfman, the latter of whom was in those days freelancing in Marvel, but was up at DC a lot, who asked me point-blank why I was glad to be in comics. We're in a dying business, intoned Len. Don't you know that? Asked Marvin. If we're in a dying business, I thought, one of the reasons is because the books are so damn bad. Okay, I said, why are you still here? Oh, we're not going to be in comics much longer, Len replied. No, we're going to move to Hollywood and write the love boat, said Marvin. Most, though by no means all, other comics pros would uh, voice similar career goals at the drop of a cowl, at least until June of 1978. Even though I still had a job, others weren't so fortunate. Since the layoffs happened in late June and early July, with the cancellations announced on June 22, 1978, office wags dubbed those actions the Summer Solstice Massacre, though the tag DC implosion proved more enduring. Not long after, there was a meeting of the entire DC staff to officially explain the new world to us. We were informed at this meeting that virtually all staff freelancing would come to a halt, save for those who had their output secured contractually. DC would need all its pages, we were told, for the freelancers who had contracts and work was guaranteed and work guaranteed to them. This was particularly bad news personally. I had just begun writing the Ray back up in Black Lightning, having taken over the feature from Roger McKenzie, who was now freelancing full time mostly for Marvel. Oddly, I'd followed Roger as a staff proofreader as well. The exercise of writing and the income would be both would both be sorely missed. But DC had a lot of freelancers under contract, the most prolific of whom was Jerry Conway. Jerry had at least two monthly titles, Firestorm and Steel, the Indestructible Man, insert your own joke here, cancelled in the implosion, and a few more on the drawing board that would never see the light of day like The Vixen. DC would need to make sure he had all the work he was contracted for. The issue of keeping all the balls in the air, of making sure all contracted freelancers had enough work, was addressed in the meeting of the the entire editorial department. We gathered in the largest office, Joe Orlando's, as Paul Levitz, in those days credited as an editorial coordinator, handed out a list of DC titles still being published and tallying up the available editorial pages, then produced a list of contracted freelancers and the number of pages they were guaranteed. The rest of the meeting was a matter of seeing which pegs fit which holes. Creativity by the pound. Some of his choices were no-brainers. For example, Carrie Bates, who had scripted The Flash in Action Comics for some time, would continue those titles on a monthly basis. Other, more prolific writer scripters, like the aforementioned Jerry Conway, were a somewhat different story. It was realized that it might be a difficult task to guarantee Jerry all the pages of script he and his wife, under his name for his page rate, had been producing for DC and DC's superhero titles. Well, said Paul Levitz, I can pick up Jerry Slack with the mystery titles like House of Mystery and Weird War Tales. My God, groaned someone. Jerry Conway, our top scripter, is going to be writing mystery stories? Why not, replied Paul. It might be a nice change for him. Artists were similarly poured through the same strainer. Jim Aparo, for example, would simply continue on The Brave and the Bold, which, has, which was his regular assignment anyway, and which had just been made a monthly. Kurt Swan would continue to provide yeoman service on Superman in action. But others were a tougher fit. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, for example, was barely prolific enough to do more than a monthly title. 
Yet not only was he under contract, but DC rightly loved his work. He had been slated to pencil the Superman-Batman strip in World's Finest. Yet his contract called for a few pages more. My only contribution to this game of editorial scrabble was to suggest that Jose also pencil the Dead Man strip in Adventure, a good matching of artists with subject matter which also topped off his contractual obligation. But despite the seeming coolness with which these decisions are related on the printed page, we were dealing with people's incomes, and many of these people were loyal employees of years duration, and sometimes friends. It was extremely difficult to me to juggle my colleagues' lives and incomes in this way. Others found it easier. After all, they hadn't been fired and had been in known danger of the same. And you know, anyone who has ever been at a company that was experiencing layoffs or restructuring, they often call it, uh, they know the feeling that uh, Mike Barr is talking about, uh, just this uncertainty, am I next? And not just me, you know, are the people I know, the people I work with, Who who's next? What's going to happen next? What's my tomorrow going to look like? Um, and there would be more changes uh, down the pike for a lot of these people, uh, in DC Comics, it sort of led to a uh, creative revival, though, as we know. Uh, things kind of turned around in 1980 when Marv Wolfman and George Perez began doing uh, New Teen Titans. But I'm not going to give away any more, folks. I want you to uh, point your browsers or your feet to the nearest book dispensary location. And I want you to get yourself a copy of the of Comic Book Explosion by Keith Dallas and John Wells. Uh, it's really super readable, fascinating stuff, even if you know or think you know the story of the DC explosion and implosion as I did. This is invaluable in giving you much more uh, information, much more clarity, and, you know, like I say, the people that were there talking about it. So, fascinating subject. Uh, again, I apologize for the uh, sound quality next time. I promise it will be a lot better. And I will have access to more of my uh, research materials as we keep opening boxes. So who knows what I might talk about next time. But you can also write to us over at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Uh, find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmicteamill. Or on Twitter and Instagram at cosmicteamill. Find me at Reggie Reggie, Chris at Ace Comics. Uh, his website is chrisoninfiniteearths.com. Ours is chrisandreggie.com. That's where you find our archives and where you can check out that first ever episode that was about the DC Comics explosion. Uh, go to tomorrow's, T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com to find this book and other amazing uh, research materials. And uh, they do magazines, alter ego, back page. These are all very important things if you're into comics history. Um, and uh, don't forget, folks, we do have a Patreon if you like what we're doing. Head over to patreon.com slash Chris and Reggie. Chip in five bucks. You will get a, a enamel pin that you can wear with pride and access to three exclusive shows, including one where we talk about naughty books. Woo. Anyway, guys, thanks for listening. Again, apologies for the echo. Hope you enjoyed. Hope you get this book. Let me know what you think. And I am out of here. To melancholy rhythms, to the colors of pain With a chemical imbalance that can smother your brain Kinda pissed cause I'm the player, pull the plug from your games Either that or put another burning slug in your frame Make the call, I break the score, club of the game
for the music and love, pain, sweat, blood, rain, rhyme, shit, mud, stain, dirt, not the game, perfect.